Thank you, Tommy. We met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer. And I'm going to ask that we go to the Lord in silent prayer, and you uh, petition whatever you choose. And we know from our understanding of Romans 8, 6, and 7 that uh, we don't know about what to pray, but that's okay because, again, The perfect prayer is going to be presented to the Father by God the Holy Spirit and in conjunction with the Lord Jesus Christ. And a perfect plan will be implemented as a result of the perfect prayer. So we can go to Him and ask whatever we want and we're going to know that the prayer is going to get there. uh, An excellent prayer, a perfect prayer. All right, let's go to the Lord in silent prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, uh, we of course find ourselves as a nation today with various problems, uh, not the least of which is unity and accepting authority, etc. Maybe not thee, but me, but uh, I uh, thought about that a lot and I thought, well, what's the answer? And the answer is Second Chronicles 7.14. And you can see there, it says, If my people 
which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Then will I hear from heaven. And, uh, of course, we also have to turn from our wicked ways. Uh, then he's going to hear from heaven and heal our land. So it's important for us to recognize the solution. And then I thought about myself and what I'm supposed to be doing. And I thought it couldn't be uh, stated any better than a expanded translation uh, from when we studied Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And it says, God appointed me a preacher and an apostle for one purpose, to make clear that there is only one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the God-man Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom for all, his testimony having come in his proper time. What I am telling you is the truth. I am not lying. I am a teacher of the true faith. And so that's my job to uh, to be a teacher of the true faith. As you know, the gift of apostleship, as we study from our doctrine of apostleship, is no longer extant, but uh, certainly the teacher's gift is. And uh, that is my job. So I hope that I can do that and do it well. I did find out, by the way, how much I need you all because I sat down and tried to do a snow day lesson and I just had a hard time doing it. So it's so much easier when you're here and I can uh, uh, present what God would have for me to present. So, so much then to what we have to do and our job, of course, is to do it. And uh, we're going to try to do that this morning. All right, now let's go to another aspect of worship, which is giving. And as you know, uh, giving uh, is something that we do here. We do not tithe and we don't uh, uh, try to bribe God by saying, here's my gift, you do this. Uh, but rather, we just try to follow the Scripture. And uh, certainly the Scripture is very clearly presented in terms of uh, its uh, entirety in our doctrine of giving, which is on the Internet. But uh, additionally, it's summarized in 2 Corinthians 8.12 and 2 Corinthians 9.7, which basically tells us that if you want to give, you can give in the privacy of your mind. So when we have a moment of silent prayer, you think about giving, and if you want to give, you gave whether you have anything or not. Whether you have something is God's business because He's the one that provides the things that we uh, have, uh, which we call, of course, monetary. Uh, or if you're going to give something, you have to have something to give, don't you? Well, who provides that? God provides that in every case. And He can take it away as He's told us, you know, about the guy who had the barns which were full, and then all of a sudden he had nothing. So uh, you want to give, you can give in the privacy of your mind, whether you have anything or not. But if you do, then you go to 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, because God loves a cheerful giver. So if you can be a cheerful giver, uh, give it. If not, you ought not give it. 
So, so much then for giving. Now let's go to the Lord in silent prayer. And uh, you think about uh, giving, and then I'm going to close with a, a blessing on both the gift, the, the giver, and also on the rest of our service. So let us pray again. Father, thank you for the opportunity of living in this great country of ours. And now I would uh, certainly ask that you would help us to be reminded that we are to uh, use 1 John 1, 9 so that we can be taught. And also, Father, we request that you would bless both the gift and the giver and the rest of this service. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, now let's uh, have some music. We're going to, again, use the recording device over there that we refer to often as a box of chocolates because sometimes we don't know what we're going to get. But hopefully uh, we're going to get Majestic Is His Name from Emily Elizabeth Hammond. So, number two. Certainly one of the ways that God has shown us His majesty is when uh, He permitted the building of the various temples. And you will see on our remembrance table that we have an artist's rendition uh, sometime back, of course, uh, showing the size of Herod's temple. And you remember Herod's temple was a way the Herod, he actually modified Zerubbabel's temple and made it bigger because he was attempting to, to uh, impress the Jews uh, with the fact that he was, uh, uh, quote, a Jew and supporting Jewish causes, though he was not a Jew. 
All right, so you can take a look at it. It's uh, it's uh, on the in the book up here that we've used before, which is full of some wonderful renditions of artists in their works. All right, last week I talked via the internet and the podcast, uh, what I call snow day, and uh, when the clock told eleven thirty or so, uh, somewhere. Uh, I stopped, and uh, my wife had to come and tell me, you've been talking to her for an hour. I said, you've been talking an hour. <laughs> but uh, uh, I did get, I, I finally got unwound, but it just, I missed you so much. But, uh, uh, and, and the pulpit, there's something about the magic here. But uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, we're going on now with additional work. And you remember the tabernacle, that was the tent, and it was a, a, a large tent. It had to be folded up and carried uh, whenever the Jew was traveling in the Exodus and after the Exodus, etc. And then when they would stop, they would unfold it, you know, and God would come and, and uh, quote, rest in the tabernacle, the big tent. Moses would go in there and talk with God and come back out and his face would glow when he came back out because he'd been with God and uh, it was quite a show, I'm sure. And uh, when they saw him walking with his staff on the way to the temple, he knew God would soon be there and they could see God coming you know, in a cloud and he would go into the tabernacle, not temple, the tabernacle. And then, of course, as you remember, they got rid of the... the uh, Tabernacle, and then they got the Temple of Solomon. That was your first temple. And uh, David was wanted so badly to uh, uh, build the temple. And God said, no, you can't. You have so much blood on your hands. You've been such an outstandingly, an outstanding warrior that uh, I just don't want you building it. But uh, let your son build it. So, so Solomon was his son. And... Uh, uh, I was talking to Ken about it. Both Ken and I were in the business world for some time, and, and uh, as our some of them, particularly Wayne, will understand it when you start talking about a big stock room. But uh, uh, we have a listing of all the things that David acquired, particularly for Hiram and others, and uh, got everything ready. And I think about a huge stockroom, and many of the things are listed in there. You know, he got the cedar blocks, and he got the cedar trees, and he got all he got all kind of stuff. Things to hang the curtains, and they uh, in the business world today, you'd have part numbers by everything, and it'd all be on the computer, hopefully. Uh, and uh, I can just imagine the stockroom being in a huge uh, tent of some sort, or maybe there. Uh, in the in Jerusalem, after he got the city and defeated the city and took it away from uh, Melchizedek, but uh, it had to be overwhelming when you looked at it. And Solomon saw it and thought, "Whoa, I've got to build a temple, and here's all the parts for it. And where's the specifications? Where's the parts list? You know, where's the listing on the drawing, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And he said, "God gave it to you." Moses wrote it all down, and it's there. So uh, 
the temple was built. And that, of course, would be Solomon. It was built in 960 B.C. Then the temple of Zerubbabel, and you remember him. Uh, the king, he was the political leader when they came back to the land. And that the temple was finished in 516. It took some time. It went from 520 to 516 to finish it because the the where the ark was, the altar, they finished it first and they said, that's all we're going to do. We're just going to stop for a while and we got a place to worship, so what the heck? Let's go work on our houses. So they worked on their own houses. So that's why Zechariah and Haggai were sent in order to uh, uh, urge them to quit working on your house and go work on the Lord's temple, you know. Get it finished. So they did in 516. Then there was the temple of Herod, as I've mentioned, which uh, this is a, this, in this book is a picture of this huge building uh, that he uh, took Zerubbabel's temple because it was small. You remember, I think I've told you before, the people were disappointed when they saw it because some of them remembered either what someone had told them or maybe some of them were old enough to know, but uh, it's smaller. You know, my goodness. And uh, we'll, we'll read a scripture of that maybe as we go along. But... Uh, so Herod made it larger. He's trying to make it impressive. And that's what this is a picture here of in this book that's on the remembrance table. And then, of course, there is the temple of Christ during the millennium, which is much smaller. You have in chapter 40, the book of Ezekiel. You have a description of it. And it's one that Christ will use in the millennium. He doesn't need much of a temple. Because, you know, He will be on earth and all of His power will be on earth and His majesty that we just heard on the song. Uh, so, uh, there one other temple. Not the same kind of temple, but it's a temple according to the Scripture. Second Corinthians 6, 16, it says, In what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Talking about marrying an unbeliever. You're marrying Satan. You're marrying a demon on earth. Okay, if you're marrying an unbeliever. Don't do that. For you are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. So, we in this age of the church are also temples of the living God. Alright, then we looked at a historical summary. Well, by the way, we're going to pick up a new material on page 4. At point 6.4. But, uh, let's look at the... Just a little bit about the summary. The word for it in the Hebrew that's translated temple is hikau. And I showed you what a giant building it was uh, by the picture on the remembrance table. But in addition to that, uh, we have a chart of Solomon's temple. And there on page 2. And then we remember what kind of worship uh, was being done by the uh, Canaanites. Uh, when they Israel entered the land, I've got a picture of the uh, on page three, which shows the various sites, if you will, Jebusites. Melchizedek was a Jebusite, but they worshipped false gods, and they generally worshipped them uh, on the on the in the groves, as the scripture says, 
the mountaintops. They would go and they would have orgies and it was just a most uh, unpleasant uh, thing. And God warned them time and time again, don't do that. But, uh, you know, quote, close quote, they couldn't help themselves. They just had to go up there and have an orgy, you know, and they also had sacrifices. So uh, I've got some description of that in the lesson plan. Now let's go to page two and look at that giant building. And then let's go down to the little chart where we show uh, the Rashamra tablets. Now if you go into the Old Testament, you find a description of don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Uh, significant amount of scriptural information. And uh, that it's accurate. Many of the expositors have said all you have to do is go to the Rosh Hashanah tablets. And you'll see up there, it's kind of hard for me to see with my glaucoma, but uh, there's a, a place called Fukhar. Fukhar. And it's right where the Carmel is. And you can see there in the archaeological tales, you can see El Fukhar. That's where they found the Ugarit tablets. So they dug down and dug down and dug down and they found these, what they call the Rashamra tablets, where the things that God said don't do are listed in there as things they were doing. So you have a secular record of all the bad things, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Archites, the uh, Parasites, etc., we're doing, or you're told not to do it. And then you can go to the Rosh Hashanah tablets and find secular information that tells you this is what they were doing. That's why God said don't do it anymore. So the Bible describes their heinous practices, beginning on page 3 or so. Uh, it's 3.2. Uh, in Leviticus 18.3, and uh, Leviticus 18.21, we say, After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. And you can see what they were doing in the, the, the tell that was shown in the, in, the, in the map on the previous page. And then Leviticus 18.21, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. They were actually doing child sacrifice. They would go up there, and if you'll read my doctrine of... Uh, uh, I forget the title that I, that I gave it, but uh, uh, it tells of all the things that they did up there. It's, it's the uh, 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 terrible things. They would sacrifice their children. And, and some of the historians have written that the women could not enjoy the orgy and the men couldn't enjoy the orgy if they couldn't hear their children screaming in the fire. That's what the various Canaanites were doing. And that's when God said, kill every one of them when you come in. But they didn't. They let some of them live, etc. So you can see then on page 3 a listing of, uh, again, uh, the Hittites and the Archites and the Ammonites and the Perizzites and the Jerusites and the Philistine, etc. The Moabites, the Amorites, Ammonites. Over and over again, uh, and they were supposed to go in there and get rid of them. That's what God told Moses to do and Joshua to do. But unfortunately, they didn't do that. They let some of them hang around. So at several Israelite sites on point four, 
uh, beginning with the divided monarchy, several enclosed sanctuaries have been found. These sites were in the main facades located in the northern kingdom, but they have also found uh, uh, some of the Canaanite sites. Uh, and uh, the uh, ones that have been found in the main have been those things that were made in the northern kingdom. Remember now, the kingdom was split. David had a was the last of the kings to have a complete and a solid uh, uh, kingdom. No, in other words, no northern kingdom, no southern kingdom. And he got all that by, by warfare. He went out and got it by warfare. And he left it with Solomon. And Solomon took some care of it, though Solomon had a problem with women. Remember how many concubines he had and how many wives he had. It was ridiculous. And, of course, what went with that was false teaching. And people love false teaching. It makes them feel good. And they'll go anywhere for it. Sounds silly, but it's true. Uh, And uh, so Solomon was hard on his people. And so when Solomon died, his rightful heir was Rehoboam. And uh, Rehoboam was to rule the entire kingdom, but people came to him and said, are you going to be easy on us? No, I'm going to be a lot harder than Solomon ever was. And that scared him. So they decided, well, we don't think we want to, we want to serve you. So it split. Many of them went north, and some stayed south. The southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. And uh, a guy by the name of Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. He ruled in the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was Jeroboam, who was a hotshot guy who was very successful in doing the things that uh, uh, he had been asked to do down in Egypt. So uh, in the, uh, that's why we had the split kingdom. So in the north, since they didn't have any kind of temple, they they made little temples up there so they could come to worship. They were more like synagogues might be the better term for it. No hekals. So uh, in the Greek, of course, you have the two team that we find that is that we left the Hebrew language and went to the Greek language, and it still talked about the various temples and stuff. Uh, you have the word Hieros, which was the entire area. Then you had the Naos, which was the sanctuary or the shrine. And uh, we're going to now begin new material. That was a review from the website and the podcast uh, and other information, some of which was taught here. Hopefully it was a good review. But Solomon's temple, as we mentioned, was very huge. The building was completed in 960 B.C., requiring a total of seven and a half years. You can find it there in 1 Kings 6.1, and then chapter 6, verse 37 through 38. It was large. It was a huge temple. It's going to be destroyed, you'll remember, by the Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he's going to make three swipes at it, three sieges, 596. Three times Nebuchadnezzar is going to sweep in there. And the last one is where he destroys the temple itself. And it will be rebuilt by, again, as Zerubbabel's temple, which we'll see a little later. 
So the origin of this house of worship is credited to David, but in First Chronicles chapter 28, you'll remember he, he was told, you can't build it, Solomon's got to build it. Uh, and that all because of his uh, having blood on his hands. So he purchased the material to be used, and we listed that in First Chronicles 28, 3 through 4, and Second Samuel 24, 21. Uh, and that's why that prompted my my description of a big stock room, because you'll find listed there in those scriptures many of the things that he got from, for example, from Hiram, uh, and he had to give Hiram, I think, five cities, as I recall. In other words, I'll give you all this stuff. I'll give you these rocks. I'll give you these bricks. I'll give you these uh, uh, cedars and so forth. And all of these other things, but I want five cities for it. So Solomon said, uh, in this particular, David, excuse me, not Solomon. David said, okay, you get the cities, but I get the stuff. Because I want it all laid out so my boy can come and uh, get the specifications. Call in his very bright people who are going to do the work. You know, nothing's impossible for the guy who doesn't have to do it himself. That used to be one of my favorite sayings when I, somebody would brag on my organization or something. I'd say, well, nothing is impossible for the man who doesn't have to do it himself. But uh, there were, these things were all getting, were prepared to be, to be built by Solomon. So he did that in First Chronicles 22, verse 6. We have it mentioned. The plan of this edifice was similar to that of the tabernacle, which we've shown you pictures of before, schematics. But the dimensions were much larger. Uh, and the heights tripled. So the stone walls were lined with carved cedar, which was overlaid with gold. And, uh, of course, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had removed most of the very value, valuable stuff out, out of it. And, as Kim and I were talking, uh, when uh, the uh, Romans in 70 A.D. come to destroy the temple, they were really enthused and thought, man, we're going in there and we've heard tales about the gold that's in there, etc., etc., etc. And when they got in there, somebody had taken all the gold, you know, accoutrements, if you will, and already it was gone. But as Kim was uh, telling me that he had read where some of the things they couldn't take, maybe because they didn't know, uh, but the, they burned the, the temple. Well, the gold melted because of the fire. So uh, this is when uh, the Romans came in 70 A.D. and first Vespasian came. He was Caesar. And he brought his son Titus and Domitian, two sons, Titus and Domitian, Titus in particular, which I'd like to teach the book of Titus before long. I was trying to look through all my books, and I thought I had a book maybe that thick, and I have four books that are that thick. That's with me writing and exegeting and documenting, etc. But uh, I'd like to teach the book of Titus. I taught it a long, long, long time ago. I'm not really as old as I look. But uh, some people take exception to that. But uh, in fact, somebody said one time about, I was telling them all the things I've done from the time I started as a stock boy at Safeway and uh, signed with the Baltimore Oriole and played baseball and did this and did that, you know, and went to law school and did that and 
I got a master's degree, got a bachelor's degree, and uh, taught at UCLA, and uh, taught at San Antonio Junior College, and married a beautiful woman, and all that kind of stuff. You know, they said, man, if if you'd done all of the things that you say that you've done, you'd be 150 years old. But uh, I said, but most of it I did at the same time. Like I went to law school at the same time I taught at San Antonio Junior College, like the same time I served in the United States Air Force. I said, uh, but uh, when did you have time for your wife and your child? None. I was the worst husband and the worst daddy around, so I had a lot of makeup work to do, you know. Just all I wanted to do was work, 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 make money, make money, make money, you know. And uh, how's the best way to do that? So I'm telling on myself, aren't I? But, uh, you know, God works in mysterious ways. All right, let's go on now. All right, the ceilings and even the floor were covered with gold. The partition separating the holy of holiness or holiest from the holy place apparently was gold also. First Kings 6, 16, he partitioned. Twenty cubits at the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary the most holy. Now it goes on to tell you that the inner sanctuary, how big it was and so forth, it was overlaid with pure gold. You had the altar of incense. The entrance to the Holy of Holies consisted of double door of olive wood with carvings overlaid with gold. And then they had a curtain. See, I always thought, you learn something when you're a teacher. Most of you have taught, found that out, didn't you? But the point being, I didn't know they had doors. I thought it was just a veil to the Holy of Holies. But they had these beautiful doors, carved doors. And they had the veil. And they kept the door open, of course, when they uh, wanted to enter. They had to, and then they'd go through the veil, pull the veil back. And it was the veil that was rent when the Christ was on the cross when he took care of the sins of the world. And, of course, there was... Terrible uh, earthquake, too, at the same time. And it's really portrayed really well in the the, the uh, movie, Passion of Christ. It shows everything crumbling because Christ was taking care of your sins and He was taking care of my sins and God was destroying the temple, the law, the things that kept people from Christ. Christ is the answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, says the scripture quite simply. Alright, so the doorway stood open but was veiled with material similar to that in the tabernacle. One of the tests was they took oxen and they put a team of oxen on the right, team of oxen on the left. They hooked everything up to the veil and then they would whip the oxen and they would run trying to, to, to rent the veil, rend the veil. And uh, if, it, if they couldn't tear it, then uh, it was okay. And that was a destruct test. Uh, but uh, I'll tell you one quick story. When I was at North American Asian Work, that's another thing that I did five years on the space program. But when I was working on the space program, we had a particular part that we could never get it through inspection and into the stock room. And yet the vendor would swear and he had papers where he signed that he delivered it, he delivered it, he delivered it, he delivered it. 
And so I finally sent one of my boys over. I said, you go walking and you had to go get a Teamster guy to go with you, by the way, California. And uh, you couldn't pick up anything. And so he and the Teamster would go and they went in there and they found out they were destroying every one of the parts because engineering had said you want to do this test. And if it passes the test, it can go into the stockroom. But they destroyed it in the test because it, you know, it would have been like the veil that broke. They never could get the veil into the stockroom if it, they kept breaking it. Well, they kept breaking it apart, you know. So we had to get education of the uh, folks in inspection to quit destroying the part we needed on the line. We're going to the space to someday, you know. And that we did. All right, now let's go. And contrary to popular belief, there are some who says, oh, they never went to the moon. No, no, they never went to the moon. It's just a picture, a video, you know. I can assure you, they went to the moon. All right, here we go. It is believed that these appeared as winged sphinxes, that is the angels. I'm going to move forward a little bit, so just follow along with me. Uh, over the Ark of the Covenant, inside the Ark of the Covenant, you'll remember there were certain things. Um, you had uh, Moses' uh, rod. You had uh, a vase with the manna in it. Uh, and in addition to that, you had uh, uh, the rod that budded the vase that had the manna, and then the tablets that Moses brought down that were broken. All those things represented something. See, and the ark covered it. The law was covered. You don't need it anymore. It's in there and it's covered, and that's what the Jew was taught. Now, they've forgotten that now. They want to get back under the law. But the point, in many, many cases. But the point being, those things, here's, the, here's the, what was the manna for? Logistical grace. God takes care of you. What was the, 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 the Moses' rod that budded? Authority. Find your pastor, teacher, get out of him, sit down, be quiet and listen. And what was the other thing? Well, the tablet. The law. It was broken. No longer do you need it. So these things were in the ark and the ark was covered in the two angels. Only two. Two covering angels. But the scripture says there's three covering angels. But only two are up there. They're like Wings are touching. So what's the deal here? It's teaching the angelic conflict. Who's the third covering angel? It's Lucifer. It's in the Scripture. Lucifer was a covering angel. But there are only two left over the ark. See, that was their Bible. I said this before, and I'll say it again. That's their Bible. That was their Bible. They didn't have a Bible. Moses hadn't put it in writing yet. But the point being... It was there and the priest had to teach all that. Not had to. Surely he liked to do it. I hope he liked to do it. It is fun. When you follow God's rules and regulations. Alright, so Ezekiel, Daniel, and Obadiah were written in exile to first Babylon and later Persia. So we're talking now about the case with Zechariah and Zerubbabel's temple. But let's go ahead and go now to... Point, uh, well, it's uh, entitled Zerubbabel's Temple. Alright, now Zerubbabel's Temple. See, the temple was destroyed. Who destroyed it? 70 AD, the Romans. Vespasian started it, but Vespasian lost control. Well, actually, Vespasian had to leave and go take care of uh, Rome. 
Because Rome was fighting. They had three Caesars. They were fighting over who's going to be Caesar. So Vespasian said, I'm going back and make myself Caesar. Because I got the soldiers to do it. So he went back and made himself But he left Titus and he left uh, Titus to be in charge. And Titus lost control of the soldiers. And they just ran rampant and went through and destroyed the temple. There was no idea to destroy the temple just to get rid of the Jews. But they lost control because why? There's gold in them nor hills. You know, There's gold in that place. You know, So they charged and they went in there and they destroyed it. So it's gone. But there had been periodic plundering which had occurred at also, for example, we mentioned the Egyptians and Shishak was his name. He, he invaded in 925 and his first kings 14, 25 and 26 tell us he took a lot of the treasures out and Nebuchadnezzar had taken a lot of the treasures out. So now then, it's gone. 70 AD. So they want a temple. Let's talk about Zerubbabel's temple. Now we're really into new material. All right. Uh, while prophecy includes prediction, it is very often more than prediction. It frequently teaches a moral and spiritual lesson. Such is certainly the case with Zechariah, who declares national discipline will follow national error, although un- ultimately the grace of God will deliver his people in his time. All right. Ezekiel, Daniel, and Obadiah were written in exile to first Babylon and later Persia. The exilic period is a name customarily given to a 70-year period, predicted, by the way, by, again, uh, uh, Scripture. You're going to be there 70 years. All right, that was Jeremiah that said that. Which the Jews were displaced from their country after the destruction of their temple, capital city, and commonwealth by Nebuchadnezzar from 606 to 536. Now, there were people who were taken captive Again, in the first 606 destruction, uh, that was uh, actually Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then we have uh, an addition to that when we had the next 606 down to 597. And that's where Ezekiel was taken captive and taken out. So in 586, all this now because each ruler would rebel against Babylon. And... Uh, the last one was Nebuchadnezzar in 586. And the scripture tells us he took everybody that was any good at all. I mean, they were just removed and taken off to Babylon. So the displacement came as a result of continued and prolonged rejection of God's protocol, mainly a sustained dalliance with foreign gods and refusal to listen to their major prophet Jeremiah. One of the more major eras of Judah which seemed to stick in the craw of Nebuchadnezzar was their alliance with Egypt and Assyria. Now they paid for it. So the destruction as I have just reviewed for you came in three stages. So you can see 3.1, 3.2, 3.2.1. There's comparison that I just made for you. Let's look at 3.2.1. Nebuchadnezzar in 597 took some 10,000 captives among whom were the king himself and a young prophet named Ezekiel. That was 597 compared with Second Chronicles 36.10, 2 Kings 24.8 through 20. All right, uh, and he describes what he did, what he saw on the Kabar River, how the heavens were opened up and he saw the vision. Then in verse 3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the land of the Lord was upon him. And then we let's look at who was king. 
at the time of Ezekiel's removal. Jehoiakim. There was a Jehoiakim, and there was a Jehoiakim, and then there was a Zedekiah. All right, let's, uh, we have first Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and then Zedekiah. He was the 586 guy. His was the terrible story because he was carried off to Babylon and his son was brought before him. And the king of Babylon said, look at this guy. That's your son. You see him? Be the last thing you ever see. And they gouged his eyes out. Why? Because he had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So these are the Babylonians. Now you can kind of get an idea when I taught you eschatology. I don't know if it was on Wednesday night maybe or here. When the last thing Christ does, He comes walking up from Edom and there's blood all over His garments. He's come back, second advent, defeated the armies of the world, but then He goes to Edom. You have to ask yourself, why Edom? And the Scripture tells you why. Because the Edomites were the were a they were almost Jews, but not quite Jews, because they come where, because a real Jew is a believer, remember. And uh, Edomites all came from Esau. Esau was an unbeliever. Remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob, I love. Esau, I hate. He went down and became an Edomite. Well, the Edomites were in league with Nebuchadnezzar when the city was destroyed, and so Christ has a special a special work to perform on the Edomites when he comes back. And that's why he's walking back and the Scripture tells us, where have you been? And he says, I've been down to Edom to destroy them. And so you can see it was payback. Alright, enough of that. But Jehoiakim was 18, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon together with the articles of value from the temple of the Lord. And he made Jehoiakim's uncle Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. So Zedekiah will, uh, be the last of the kings. He will be there in 586, and you'd think he'd learned his lesson. He'd seen Jehoiakim go down, he'd seen Jehoiakim go down, and he still didn't learn his lesson. He rebelled against, again, in this particular case, the Babylonians from Babylon. And I provided you a number of scriptures there in 2 Kings 24, 8, reading through verse 17, and it tells you about uh, the evils that Zedekiah did. All right, let me read it right quick. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of Elnathan. She was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, <coughs> he took Jehoiakim prisoner. And the Lord had declared Nebuchadnezzar, as the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and took away all gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. 
He carried into exile all Jerusalem, all the officers and fighting men and their craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. In other words, the dregs. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the leading men of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and a 1,000 craftsmen and artisans. He made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle king, in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. All right, finally in 586, after a long siege, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city and the temple and disrupted the entire Jewish community. Read about that in, again, 2 Kings 25, 1 through 7, and Jeremiah 34, 1 through 7, and 52, 2 through 11. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around. I've showed you a picture of the siege works before, uh, how the military used them to siege a city. Some of them were quite unique. Uh, showed a lot of thought. Just like building a huge hikal took a lot of thought, a lot of talent. Great workmen, marvelous workmen. All right, the city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Then in 2 Kings 25.3, by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled toward the Arabah, that's a desert area just north of the Persian Gulf. Second Kings 25, 5, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. All right, and then Jeremiah speaks of all that in roughly 600 or so B.C. While Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, all his army and all the kingdoms and all the people in the empires he ruled were fighting against Jerusalem and all its surrounding towns, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This will tell you that God warned them, don't don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar when he comes. Open the gates and let him in. That's what Jeremiah told them to do. But they didn't. They didn't open the gates. They let them come in. You can see pictures of that in this book where they swarmed in and unfortunately they were incapable of fighting and destroying, better said. They fought, but they did not destroy Nebuchadnezzar. So this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Go to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him. This is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand the city over to the king of Babylon and he will burn it down. You will not escape from his grasp, but prediction of what's going to happen to him but will surely be captured and handed over to him. You will see the king of Babylon with your own eyes, and he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon as a blind man. Yet hear the promise of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. This is what the Lord says concerning you. You will not die by the sword. You will die peacefully as a blind man. As people made a funeral fire in the honor of your fathers, the former kings who preceded you, so they will make a fire in your honor and lament. Alas, O Master, 
I myself make this promise, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet told all this to Zedekiah, king of Judah and Jerusalem. See, he warned him. While the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and the other cities of Judah, they were still holding out Lachish and as Azekah. These were the only fortified cities left in Judah. And then Jeremiah goes on to write. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. See, God is a God of discipline. You don't do what God wants. He knows how to discipline you. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Therefore despise not the chastening of the Lord. Book of Hebrews, New Testament. All right, now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They camped outside the city and built siege works all around it. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounded the city, they fled again toward the Arabah. All right, restoration to the land began in 536. And it was a Syrian king who ordered them to go. Old Cyrus. Now you say, well, how did the Syrians get involved here? We were talking about the Babylonians. Well, it was a time where uh, the Syrians had a group of, I'm going to call them hay boys, they were subordinates. And Darius was king of the Medes and Persians. And uh, Cyrus, though, was in charge. Now, God had predicted Cyrus is going to command. He predicted by his name he's going to command the return to the land. So let's read a little bit. All right, restoration of the land began in 536 when the Cyrus, king of the new Medo-Persian empire uh, and conqueror of Babylon, decreed the Jews could return. Second Chronicles 36, 22 through 23, Ezra 1, 1 through 4. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you that uh, Cyrus won as he sent Darius the Mede, who was uh, in charge of his troops. And you remember what was happening inside the city at that time? They were having a big party. And uh, they had a lot of, you know, scat- scantily clad, clad women dancing and so forth, and they wanted to... King wanted his wife to come, and she wouldn't come. And uh, then the first thing you know, uh, someone uh, looks up on the wall. You remember the hand on the wall and the writing on the wall? Right, 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 right. Oh, what does it say? What does it say? Well, we don't know. Well, uh, your mama probably knows. So he asked his mama. His mama said, there's somebody here who can read that, tell you what it says. So it's, it's Daniel. At that time, Darius was coming into the city. And historians tell us the way he did it, he had a boat around the city. And it had these uh, gates that went down. You've seen pictures of them when you, if you've ever watched Robin Hood and uh, uh, those period pieces. And they let the water out so they could come in. And the soldiers came in and took over the city. And now Persia ruled Babylon. They got their comeuppance. And Cyrus is, I'm going to start reading now. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to, fulf- to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. 
The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Anyone, any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with you and let him go up. So in Ezra, they got there. They, he, it was Cyrus who sent them over there to rebuild. And he sent Jerubbabel over there to rebuild it. And then he sent Joshua along with him who was his high priest. And then he had two prophets, Zechariah, and he also had uh, Haggai who were to encourage them to finish the work. Now let's look at Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the one who said it. this would happen, by the way. He said, you will be in uh, captivity for 70 years. And uh, he began to think, okay, 536, if we take away, let's see, 606 to 536 is 70 years. So, old uh, Daniel prayed in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, say through verse 10. He made his prayer. He said, look, I've seen what Jeremiah said. And I know he says we're going back in 70 years. And there's only three years away. So what are you doing, God? And here comes Gabriel. When are we going to get to go back to the land? It'll be 70 years and three years, you know. And here comes Gabriel. Gabriel said, he heard your prayer the day you said it. But I got I got waylaid here because the devil that's on the shoulder of the Persian king came and said, you can't go. So I called for Michael and Michael came down and whooped his rear end and uh, uh, let him come on in. So that's, and then uh, in Ezra, he tells basically the same story. He says, this is what the Cyrus king of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdom of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with you and let him go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So again, 150 years earlier, Isaiah had predicted Cyrus's actions by name and substance. Notice, notice with me now, Isaiah. This is a remarkable prophecy. Isaiah 44:20. And I'm watching the clock, so don't worry. Isaiah 44:28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? And will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem. Let it be rebuilt. And of the temple. Let its foundation be laid. And then in verse 13. Of chapter 45. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city. And set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward. Says the Lord Almighty. So let's stop here. See. Let's stop here. Now, that's not exactly what I meant there, but the Lord works in mysterious ways, you know. He, he could hear me this morning, and He knows what the clock says, see, and I'm right there at the time to stop, so says, let's stop here. All right, now then, let's stop here for the invitation. Because uh, <clears throat> there's nothing more important than the invitation. So uh, try to keep it quiet while we go to the invitation. And... Uh, See if we can't get the word out without confusion or, or helter skelter. Uh, so, uh, with your eyes closed and your head bowed, with your eyes closed and your head bowed, let's, uh,
Let the Lord have His way. For all have sinned, says the Scripture. For all have sinned and come short. So what's the problem? Sin. So what's the answer? Christ and His work on the cross. So all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So right where you sit, whatever you might be doing, you are a sinner. But there is an answer to your sin. There is an answer to all of your malfeasances. And of course, that is faith alone in Christ alone. For you see, God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. In fact, He came into His own Israel, and His own received Him not. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon Him. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you can tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son, and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. I will pause now for just a moment and then I will offer our benediction. So while I'm pausing, it's time for you, if you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, to do just that. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come together and to to worship. Now I would ask that... uh, God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.